Now we're recording. Oh. Now let's recap that entire freaking conversation we just had. Okay, Game of Thrones fans, (laughs) answer me this question. Why do you continually watch that freaking show and then bitch about every episode? (laughs) Okay, there we go. (laughs) I mean, it's kind of like reading Andrews and Wilson and saying, I hate every fucking book. Well, you keep reading them, so you must like something. Yeah, well... Hey, wait a minute, now it just got personal. No, and I only say that... I say that because if you ever listen to R.L. Stein, he says the greatest email he ever got was from a kid who said, I read all your Goosebump books, and I hated them all. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for money. You read them all. At least we don't take uh, seven years between books, though. Hey, we got that on George R.R. Martin. Exactly. Seven, heck. Well, and counting. Well, hey, everybody, just just so you know, we are on here, and... uh, we are here with um, Andrews and Wilson, baby. We are here with Brian Andrews and Jeff Wilson talking about their latest book five in their tier one thriller series called Red Spectre. The stuff at the beginning, that was just us being us. But now we're getting into it. So how are you guys doing, man? Doing great, man. Thanks for having us. Awesome. And how are you, how are you doing, Jeff? That was yeah, I'm doing great. Brian, how are you doing? <laughs> What's yeah, Brian, yeah, good. Good. When you have we're all shaking each other's team. hands. It's just, Okay. <laughs> we're all just shaking each other's hands over the phone, and then that's what we're doing. Right, so. right, right. That's how it works. All right. We're, we're going well, to hey guys, Jeff what? 1 and Jeff 2 for this uh, conversation. Oh, yeah, Jeff. Yeah, this, now we got a co-author team and two Jeffs. This is going to go really well. <laughs> this is it, man. Oh, for sure. This is the way it's supposed to go. If it's too, if it's, if it's too nice, isn't that just a band playing to tracks? We yeah, want exactly. live shit. Right, okay. There we go. So, hey, guys, why don't you tell us, why, why, why don't you get into it a little bit and tell us what you got going on? Well, we got book five coming out, tier one. It's uh, Red Spectre. You know, you guys are, are familiar. I don't know if everyone listening is. You know, we sort of break these tier one books into trilogies. So books one through three were sort of our Persian trilogy where we had the bad guys being uh, Iranian VVAC pulling the strings for false flag operations. And in book four, we pivoted an American operator to this emerging Russian threat, which with current events was rather lucky for us, I suppose, or prescient. I, I call it genius, obviously, but I think mostly lucky. Um, so book five continues that theme uh, with John Dempsey and his team at Ember facing this Russian threat and uh, challenging themselves like never before. So uh, the, the story continues as, as our good guys fight the Russian bad guys. And I'm kind of curious, um, you're talking about you got lucky because you're a genius about uh, dealing with current events. <laughs> so do you, does it concern you that you're writing about something that might actually make news headlines? Uh, I mean, I think it, I mean, uh, it, it, it yeah, definitely – well, it definitely is something we talk about, and, and uh, especially the uh, – it's been interesting for us um, especially Jeff, you, you, I think both you and John read American Operator, but as you know, that book came out last November, so a year ago. Right. And, um, you know, the premise of that book was, okay, what happens if the U.S. leaves Syria and Russian, Russia comes into field void and the B-61 tactical nukes at Encerlik come into play as like a, a chess piece for, you know, Russia to destabilize our relationship with Turkey. And that was all 
Jeff and me brainstorming, you know, these what-if scenarios based on uh, what we saw as potential. You know, we, we, we sit around, we, for the next book, we always think, okay, what if, you know, this happened, X, Y, Z happened, and, you know, what would be the uh, worst possible outcome? And that's sort of what we throw our guys in the Tier 1 series into. So, uh, you know, it's been interesting over the last couple of weeks, people on social media and fans and stuff reaching out to us like, God, you guys, the crystal ball was, was really working on that last book. Um, you know, what do you have in store for uh, this next book? And so we, we sort of did the same thing um, on Red Spectre and, and uh, you know, same, same process of, okay, well, what if XYZ happened? Uh, what would be the destabilizing effect? Hmm. Uh, Jeff, you got anything you yeah. to add? Well, you know, that's, it's um, – we're, we're both geopolitical junkies, and so that makes it easy. So when we're doing this, this what-if brainstorming, it's always based on things that we're following. And, of course, both of us, military veterans, uh, Navy veterans, we've still got uh, close friends and brothers that are uh, on active duty and still serving at the, the pointy tip of the spear, and so we have those conversations. And so, you know, I, I joke when I say we're very lucky. Obviously, it is partly luck if you're brainstorming an idea that's what if, and then six months after the book comes out, it's happening. So, um, but it is certainly based on not research, but just sort of being in that space uh, personally as well as professionally and, and sort of being addicted to the headlines. So um, I think that what we focus on more than the details of the geopolitics is, you know, the reality of the fiction. And so trying to paint uh, a what-if picture that's real is good, but then painting a response to that in the novel uh, and building a story arc that is true to what the characters would do, true to what operators would do, how, how American intelligence community would react, you know, I think that's, that's sort of where our, our strong suit lies. And so it's great when the geopolitics of of the real world match up with our books, um, but the real the real work is is writing the story and getting the characters right and getting the responses right. So that's the part that's work. But it has been kind of cool to see things rising up at the same time as our books, obviously. Mm-hmm. And when you do and you sit and when you do sit down and you think about you know which tangents you're kind of gonna you know you kind of gonna go on. How many roads do you know do you get led down? and then you kind of get stopped by like a roadblock, and you're like, okay, well, that's not going to work. And then is that kind of how the, the spider web kind of works for you to kind of uh, almost like choose your own adventure and then figure out that road that takes you all the way to the end that you want to get to? I, I think so. I mean, I think that's a pretty good description of how the process works for all writers. I'll tell you that um, being in a co-author team and having, you know, be sort of equally yoked with knowledge and background makes that, that circuitous road a little straighter for us because we're kind of tugging on each other. So when I write books by myself, I find myself writing myself into an alley more frequently than when I write with Brian because, you know, Brian will be like, well, you know, if we do that, this is going to happen. I'm like, oh, I didn't think of that, and I'll, and I'll chime in that for him sometimes. And I think that um, it's funny. We were talking in another interview just recently about the speed with which we write these novels and part of it is dividing and conquering and, you know, splitting up the, the actual writing. But I think part of it is, is that, Jeff. I think part of it is not allowing ourselves as much time down blind alleys because there's two of us sort of, you know, 
scoping things out, uh, and I think we spend a lot less time in things that don't go anywhere uh, than I do at least. I won't speak for Brian, but for me, when I write by myself, I spend a lot more time in those blind alleys than I do when I write with Brian, so that's probably a big part of it. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree with that, and I think, um, you know, when you're co-authoring too, when you get into that blind alley, then, uh, you know, there's two of you. <laughs> so, so if one guy's running the, running against the wall, then the other guy's like, no, we need, we need to go this way. We need to backtrack or whatever. And, and um, you know, especially with uh, with this approach that we take with the trilogies, it is a little bit of a longer arc, right? So you're you're looking at uh, a three book plot line, these longitudinal characters that will develop over three books instead of just one. And uh, in one sense, that gives us a little bit of uh, freedom because we're not necessarily boxed into, okay, we have to develop, um, you know, this entire plot for one book and kill off everybody and the story needs to wrap up with a nice, tidy little bow. Uh, it allows us to uh, get to know the bad guys and have their plans be a little bit longer. And, you know, Jeff and I talk about this, you know, in real life, you know, bad guys just don't drop dead at the end of one particular op, you know. I mean, look look at Putin, for example. I mean, this guy has been in, in power since uh, the turn of the millennium. So, you know, he's not so easy to get rid of, and, and that's what it's like in real life. So, you know, uh, bad guys have fits and starts. The good guys have fits and starts. And sometimes we even incorporate those blind alleys into the uh, into the story. You know, you, you write them, and then your character's stuck, and you're like, you know what? Th- this actually might be what would really happen. And uh, then then as the reader, you gotta you gotta get out of that mess with the character and get back on the right track. So so that's kind of interesting too. Yeah, look at him pretending oh. we do that on purpose. Yeah. <laughs> Well, good. This tells me there's going to be at least another tier one novel. So this is good news. Um, there better be. They got to finish up the trilogy. Exactly. Yeah, that's right. You got to do at least six, right? You got to do at least six. Be tier one, man. We're, we're you know. We're getting ready I mean, you could you could always do the Star Wars thing. You could always yeah, say after right. six, so, there's no it, more. It, oh, just joking. Another trilogy. Letting these little releases out about how it might be the last one to boost our sales, and then exactly and do another one anyway, just like Star Wars. That's a great <laughs> business. I mean, how many bands are on a farewell tour? Ozzy Osbourne <laughs> did his farewell tour in '92. Still going though. Right, well, well, this down. we got to write this down. This is a business plan. Mm-hmm. Yeah. General Jar Jar. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> oh Jesus. <laughs> um, so I'm curious, um, because John Dempsey is such a complex character in this series, does his background make him a liability rather than an asset? Oh, wow, that's a, that's a great question. He certainly, it certainly makes him a liability to himself at times, doesn't it? Um, you know, it's been an interesting arc for Dempsey, and it's one I don't think that we, we – had it mapped out in our minds with book one, you know, with the first couple books where he was going to go. Um, but it's become even more complex as he's become more real to us as the writers. It's, his journey has gotten more and more complicated. And, it, and at times, we actually, I actually feel a little twinges of pain at times, the stuff that has happened to John Dempsey, because, like, I guess we created that, right? Like, we've, we've beat this guy up pretty bad. Uh, so he does carry a lot of baggage. But the thing about Dempsey is that his singular focus on the mission and the team never wavers. And so 
he just drags, no matter how many more bags we put in that giant thing he's pulling behind him, he just <laughs> keeps pulling them up the hill. So, uh, so far, not a liability. But I, I get what you're saying. At some point, there's so much complexity. There's so getting pulled in so many directions that how can a, a normal person not be affected by that? You know, losing his wife and worrying about his son and, uh, you know, teammates that have come and gone, losing the whole Tier 1. It's a lot, man. It's a lot to ask anybody. Um, but so far... He's all about the mission and getting the job done. So I guess we'll see. We've got a couple more books coming, so we'll see. Cool. Nice. Nice. So in in the, in the throes of, of, you know, when when you sit down and you're doing a trilogy because you kind of have your outline, you kind of know what you're kind of going to do, but how much stuff, I guess, gets cut when you have to try to do three or how much stuff has to get added or you sit there and you're like, oh, we can't end it now, we have to continue on. Is that a big struggle when you decide that you're going to do a trilogy within a series and still make the second trilogy, you know, functionality with the first one and so on and so forth? I mean, this series um, has longitudinal characters, like you're saying. So there are a lot of characters from the first trilogy that have carried over into uh, this second trilogy. And... um, It does allow us to um, move move things around a little bit, right? So just because we introduce somebody in a particular book, if it doesn't fit for them, you know, if once you start getting, let's say you're working on the the first book and the next trilogy, and it doesn't feel right to bring a particular character in, you know, at the very beginning, you'd maybe rather bring them in midway through because that that maybe makes sense strategically based on what, you know, the scenario that you've created. That's okay. Because, you know, you still got that character, you've got book four, uh, I'm sorry, you've got book five and book six for that character to make his mark or her mark. Um, so, yeah, I think that that's, um, that flexibility to move events around is kind of what, what makes this work. And we don't, we don't have the entire three-arc book mapped out when we write the first book. We have a very general idea of where we think we want to end up at the end of the third book. Um, but it's an evolution, wouldn't you say, Jeff, like a work in progress? Oh, yeah, I agree. I agree with that. I think, and I wonder if maybe that's what you're saying. Like when we sit down at the beginning of an arc and we think we have, you know, where we're going, how often does it end up in a different direction? And if that's what you're asking, that's the answer would be every time. Um, yeah, or how fast have, do you or, – or when you're sitting down and you're thinking of that three-book arc and you kind of have the ending – how fast all of a sudden are you getting there and you're like, oh, my God, we're only in the middle of book two. We're getting too fast. We have to stop it or we have to kind of rework those things. Because when you're doing a trilogy within a series, I think that's much more difficult than just doing a straight trilogy and say, you know, like a Lord of the Rings and saying, here it is, boom, and then when it's done, it's done. Mm -hmm. That's a great question. We've never been asked that question, so I have to actually think about it. But I think you're exactly right. I think that there are times when the pacing of our perceived arc – has to change in and book two is is the perfect example. That's when it would happen, and that's when it when we, right. when we see that. It's like, do we have enough to go into the third book? Have we gone too much now? Have we not gone enough now? Um, I think those things do come up. But one one thing that's a little bit different when we write these trilogies, it's not written like part one, two, and three of a of a you know book. The books are always written to stand alone, and so. Um, and that's, you know, as much part of the, the craft as it is part of the business model, right? Like you, it, you, once you get five or six books in, it's hard to, 
get new readers, and they're like, oh, I go all the way back to the beginning. So um, our books are always designed to stand alone. So what we have to do is we have to find what's the next exciting subplot piece for book two in this trilogy that will stand alone, and how do we write that from A all the way through to Z. And then what commonly happens is that completely changes what happens in book three. So when we start in book one, we sort of have an idea where we're going to end up, and we never end up there in book three because we change course as we go. Because even in in a single book, Brian and I are not like real outliners. Like we don't sit down and have you know, 45 chapters with how the book is going to end. I would say we might have a rough idea, but our ending has never really crystallized for us until probably, what do you think, Brian, maybe 150 pages from the end, 100 pages from the end of the book. Do we even really know how that book's going to end, much less the three books? Like, I mean, it's just, it would be not fun for me, but that's just not how we do it. Hmm. Um, so it, it's a little bit maybe less of an issue. Yeah, when we turned in, I remember because we turned in the uh, for the publisher, they wanted to to see what the uh, the three book arc would be like. So we wrote synopsis for book four, five, and six, and you know, book four, the synopsis was really flushed out and pretty close to what American Opera ended up being. And then book five, I remember when we started Red Specter, you know, like looking at it, and we're like, well, I don't know, this. 100% work. So we took so, some, some of the ideas. We don't want to have any spoilers. We've got an obligation to put some sort of submarine in there because it originally was envisioned as a submarine book, which it is totally yeah. not. So. We did not. We did not put the submarine in. So maybe that'll show up in book six. And, you know, and there were some other other elements that might we might kick the can down the road to, but book six. But I mean, this this exploration of Russia has been been very interesting. I mean, one of the things that I wanted to bring up just that was interesting for me. It changed the whole sort of zeitgeist of the book is, that, you know, I think a lot of times as Americans, we tend to project our sort of paradigm onto, you know, our adversary. And, uh, you know, when Jeff and I, we did a lot of reading and research to get ready for this trilogy. And, you know, one of the things that's interesting is uh, that the Russians don't don't necessarily have the same view as us you know they sort of have this zero-sum game philosophy you know everything is a zero-sum game you know for them to gain somebody else has to lose and um you, you read accounts of the the different vori uh or uh, vori mobsters or or the uh russian oligarchs i mean if if they get wronged you know they're, they're it's not just about vengeance you know it's it's they're going to get their their comeuppance, you know, um, regardless of what sacrifice they have to make. I guess what I'm trying to say is, like, the Russians are willing to burn down their own house if it, if that's what it takes to get to you. And um, that's a very different philosophy than sort of this um, very win-win philosophy that uh, America operates with. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's exactly right. That was one thing we definitely learned about um, – Russian politics and military operations, but especially the political side of it, is, you know, to expand on that a little bit, it's to the extent where they don't even want to necessarily make themselves look great. 
They just want to make their adversary look terrible so that they'll look better in comparison. And, it, I mean, that's a very simplified version of it, obviously, but it's not that far from the truth. And so we tried to incorporate that into some of what we did in these books, that their false flag operations are not necessarily designed for them to be a winner, but rather for the West to be a loser so that yep. people will turn to them as the alternative without having to ever really make themselves better. And so we, we've weaved that through the book just because we were so fascinated by what we were learning in the research. But that's a real thing, I think. If you think about what you've seen in, in the news about Russia over the last five to eight years, you, you're forced to go, yeah, that is kind of what they do, isn't it? It's like they don't really try to make themselves any better. They just try to make everyone else look crappy by comparison, and then they look like a good alternative. And so there's a lot of that on the political side of this book. In the 1970s, spy thrillers were like Robert Ludlum, you know, where you had the person going out and solving, saving the world and doing all that stuff. Has military fiction now, has that genre replaced spy thrillers? I don't know if it's I don't know if it's replaced it, but it's it's definitely changed it, right? And so if you look at what we write, if you look at what uh, uh, you know Don Bentley, whose book is coming, his first book is coming out next year, um, some of what Jack Carr is doing, it's almost become a blended genre. Like in back then, you had Clancy writing military, and you had you know he was the follow-on to Ludlum and all of the covert spy, you know, Iron Curtain stuff. Now those two things have blended in fiction, and I think that's because those two things have blended in the real world. Mm-hmm. You know, Brian yeah. and I both have had the opportunity to work in uh, areas of the Navy that relied very heavily on other government agencies. And working in special warfare, I can tell you, even even downrange deployed, you're living on a camp that's got, you know, these other three-letter organizations all over the place and everybody's working together and so that line between military and espionage between you know covert operations and white side military operations is really gray now and so i think you're seeing that reflected in some of these books certainly in our books that's what we do you know is is american operator and and red specter a military thriller is it a covert operations thriller? Is it a spy thriller? Well, it's a little bit of all of those, because in the real world, that's how the world works now. This, the joint task forces blending other government agencies and military special operations are really the, you know, 90% of what's going on uh, in the world right now. So I, think, I don't think that we've replaced it. Man, I love that you brought up Ludlum. I grew up on that. That was my – I read everything he wrote. I wish more of his books had gotten – um, the attention that the Bourne series developed into, you know, Gemini contenders and the Scarlatti inherents. Man, I love those underdog, you know, fish out of water, save the world books. But the reality of our world is everything's blended. And so I think that you're seeing military thrillers and espionage thrillers sort of hybridizing into something that reflects the world we're in. Cool. Interesting. Yeah. Now, does it drive you crazy when you watch, like, CSI and shows, you know, and military shows and whatnot, and you kind of see how they portray how things are done and this and that, and knowing that it's so over the top and fictionalized that it's like it's not even close to, you know, how things go. Well, I mean, we talk about that. For sure, we feel that way. We drive me crazy. What drives me crazy is some of that, but especially as it applies 
to the characters, right? Like, I, I hate that every SEAL and Green Beret is, you know, got everything but the red cape, and they're these steel men and, you know, infallible right. superheroes. Not everybody's because an A student. Right. So I think the mistake that they make is they actually make the characters less interesting, of course, but they also make them by accident less heroic. When you when you, if you're Superman and you defeat the bad guy, well, yeah, you're Superman. How the hell could you not, right? But if you're an ordinary guy who's just a dedicated patriot and dedicated to your brotherhood and your teammates, and you're doing extraordinary things as an ordinary human being. That's one hell of a lot more heroic. And so when they do that, I feel like they've missed an opportunity to make their characters more interesting and to make their heroes way more impressive. And so that's what we try to do in in our books is always paint these men and women, and we have a lot of women in our books too, as you know, as ordinary people who are driven to do extraordinary things. But when they're not doing extraordinary things, they're not just polishing their cape. They're going to the Little League baseball game and they're taking the garbage to the curb and they're picking up milk on the way home. I just think it makes them more interesting and way more heroic. So I, I hear you, man. I, it's TV especially. It just drives you like Nobody would do that. Oh, what are you well, doing? I mean, one yeah. thing that's different too, though, is that, you know, in the past you had a situation, and it's probably a little bit more like this in TV, but in, in fiction writing, you know, in the past you had authors who were not – who did not serve, you know, but they were doing their research and they were telling the story about soldiers and spies, right? So you had Tom Clancy, who was a subject matter expert, but never was a veteran, right? So he's, he's sort of at the vanguard of, of the industry. Well, now you've seen this shift where you have authors who actually did serve at the pointy tip of the spear, and they're the storyteller now. And so you have them actually you know, trying to become a subject matter expert in dramatic storytelling, right? And so in television, you had television writers and producers. Uh, these are not people that are used to operating downrange. Uh, that's not their expertise. They're storytellers. So they're relying on consultants and subject matter experts to, uh, you know, help inform them about the characters. But their natural, you know, point of strength, they're always going to revert back to, you know, the dramatic recipe that they follow for, you know, writing scripted shows. And, you know, I think Jeff and I are talking about this, like with SEAL Team, you know, they've brought in a lot of people, a lot of veterans with real experience to try to, you know, add that level of authenticity and try to close that gap to sort of what Jeff and I are doing in our series. Um, But at the same time, you're still constrained by the need to, you know, create drama, pack that all into a, you know, a 55-minute episode or whatever. Right. Yeah, I, I I quit watching SEAL Team just because I kept thinking what we've been talking about. It's like, even though you bring in all these experts, it just doesn't feel authentic at all. But, um, yeah, yeah, I'll tell you, that, that show's interesting to me because it, I want to stop watching it and I don't because they, the action and the tactics and stuff, they really get – they do a pretty good job most of the time, but it's like if you had a SEAL team where every single marriage was going through divorce and every single child was a troubled youth and every single person was an alcoholic with PTSD, how could you possibly operate? And <laughs> kind of like Game Brian of Thrones, like, exactly. Right, exactly. And I get you keep what watching doing. it. They're, 
I, I kind of, right, but I keep watching it, just like Game of Thrones. But I, I think that I respect what they're trying to do. They're trying to show the human toll. They're trying to show the sacrifice. But they they get so melodramatic about it that it's like, look, yeah. you know, I there was some of that in the unit that I served in, but for every one of those guys, there was four guys that had kids that loved him and a wife that understood and did her best to support him in his work, and he wasn't an alcoholic, and he was, like, just <laughs> did his job. and But... Is that as entertaining? Like, like Brian is saying, you know, they do have a challenge in 47 minutes of, of actual airtime to paint these pictures, whereas we can spread it out over 400 pages and, you know, suss these things out in a more subtle way. But, yeah, it drives you crazy, uh, some of these things that they do that are over the top. Well, I, I have a two-part question here for you. Um, first of all, is Alex Ryan dead? And second, what is what is Sons of War? Oh, those are great questions. Which um, one do you want to take, Jeff? First one or second one? I'll I'll uh, take the second one. <laughs> okay, you take the fun one. Um, so Alex Ryan is uh, in cryo sleep. <laughs> we don't know. <laughs> we don't know how. What the Ryan hell is that? Will he be welcome? I know what it is, but again? we don't know. We don't know. We'd love, okay. we'd love to write more of that series. Boy, we love those characters in Beijing Red and Hong Kong Black. Uh, but, you know, the, the, the publisher is not behind it, and we don't have all the rights, and so it's a complicated thing. But we'd love to come back to it, but he's definitely – Alex Ryan has definitely taken a very long sabbatical. But the exciting news is we got something new, and that's what you're talking about is, is Sons of War. So uh, just been yeah. a couple weeks since we publicly announced a new three-book deal with Blackstone uh, for Sons of War. And what is exciting for us, because we so love the Tier 1 series and hopefully will be exciting for our readers, is that this is a shared world series. So this is a spinoff of the Tier 1 books. Um, we have this character, Keith Redman, Lieutenant Commander Keith Redman, who's a Navy SEAL, who has been a minor character in several books. He was made his first appearance in War Shadows, and he's uh, shown up. Uh, he's going to be seen quite a bit in Red Spectre. Um, and he has become this fan favorite. We get more, other than Elizabeth Grimes, because everybody loves her, we get more mail actually about Chunk and when can they see more of Chunk and his team uh, operating with the Ember team. And so we had this idea to spin off a series that would feature uh, Chunk, which is uh, Lieutenant Commander Redmond's nickname, him and his guys, you know, the premise of Tier 1 is that the entire Tier 1 SEAL team is wiped out in this ambush in Yemen in Book 1, and from those ashes rises Task Force Ember to hunt down those responsible. But it would make sense at some point JSOC would stand the Tier 1 back up, right? They'd repopulate it. And so the premise of Sons of War is that the new Tier 1 is going to emerge, and it's going. Uh, one of those squadrons is going to be led by Redman and several of the other uh, characters that people are starting to like in, in the other books, um, Riker and Tripp and Saw and all these guys, they're all recruited to form the new SEAL team that will be the new JSOC Tier 1 SEAL team. Uh, and so this will follow those adventures. And it will be more back to our roots that you saw in Tier 1. It's going to be good door-kicking action, SEAL team operating, terrorist-killing stuff. So 
Um, we're really, really excited about it. Blackstone has been amazing uh, in their support of the idea. Uh, so the first book in that series, Sons of War, uh, comes out uh, next winter. Um, we're actually just punished, putting some of the final touches on the rough draft uh, this afternoon as we, as we speak. We were working on that. So super, super excited for that series. But the big thing we want our readers to know is Tier 1's not going anywhere. Tier 1 is still out there. Dempsey's not going anywhere. These things can coexist. So uh, it's going to be fun to write both of them. Awesome. Another trilogy. So, yeah. <laughs> it's a series. I don't know. It's going to be a trilogy. <laughs> so where's the best place for people to find out about all of the stuff that you got going on and keeping up with you? Well, you know, we got a lot of information comes out through our newsletter. You can always follow us at uh, – www.andrews-wilson.com. That's our website. Uh, and there's a, information there, updates on appearances. We've got, with the book coming out, we're going to be traveling around a bit and um, doing some signings and stuff. So information on appearances there. Everything you need to know about the books is there. But we really encourage people to sign up for the newsletter. We're a little bit uh, maybe not as good as some other authors at keeping our website always up to date, but we're pretty good with our newsletter. So when there's something really exciting to know, we can send that out. So we encourage people to sign up for the newsletter at that website. And, and what's the name of the website again? It's andrews-wilson.com. Great. Do you guys go to a lot of events? Because I know BoucherCon's going on this week. I don't, you guys probably aren't there, but do you guys attend uh, events so people can see you out and about maybe? Yeah, we do. We were. I was at BoucherCon uh, last year. We always are at Thriller Fest every year. We're, we do several panels there, and that's a, a time when we connect with readers and our fellow writers. Um, as we move forward, we'll be at other other events too. There's a couple coming up this year. We this year BoucherCon just fell right in the middle of fu- finishing the first draft of the first book in a new series we contracted for, so the timing wasn't great for us. But for sure, we'll be at Thriller Fest. And all of our other appearances are on the website. Nice. Well, guys, awesome. we want to thank you for coming on always, of course, and talking about Tier 1 uh, and everything else you got going on. You guys are very, very busy writers, which is good to see. Uh, you know, there's not enough good books out there anymore. There's so many self-published crap that you have to kind of get through. <laughs> <laughs> so. Well, we always enjoy talking to you guys. It's one of our favorite interviews we do, so we really appreciate you having us. It's Who's the fun. other one? Can't tell you, man. But you know, you know. Yeah. You get so tired of where do you get your ideas? Oh my God! You know, like how many times can you answer that question? So I'm going to tell you. I'm going to tell you something. We 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 talked with um we talked with an author. I won't say who it is, but he does. I don't know a couple hundred interviews for when a book comes out. Pretty big author, and he says ninety percent of the interviews he does are literally the people reading the questions back to him that he sends out via, like, his release and, you know, already answers them. So he literally just rereads the answers that he's already given. Maybe you should record <laughs> I'm like, them and he could just hit, I'm like, wow, just hit I'm, like, I'm like, talk about boring-ass interview. I wouldn't even go back to him again. Like, what am I going to do? Why don't you well, just read them on the air and act like I was there? Is- Halfway through these interviews, I forget it's an interview. I feel like I'm, like, sitting down having a drink with you guys. It's so much fun. That's the whole idea. And, That's you know, awesome. I, actually might be, I might actually be having a drink right now. I'm not going to lie to you. I just took a drink. <laughs> you know, I just took a drink because I can't, you know, it's too early to smoke a bong. But that's just what I do. 
You know, I'm going to go get a drink here. Good grief. I'm, I'm missing yeah. out here. <laughs> no, no, Jeff, you got enough going on in the library. You don't need no more. Oh, uh, true, true. So, yeah. Well, hey, guys, we wish you, know, you, know, we wish you know, uh, nothing but the best. Can't wait to see what else is coming up. So always keep us informed, and uh, we'll love to bring you back when either the next uh, – what's going to come out first again? Is it going to be book six, or is it going to be this new uh, series? Which one do you think Book six will come out uh, next – Late summer, early fall of next year, probably, and then. Um, oh, okay, yeah. Winter. The other one's not even new. Yeah, the other one's not even ready yet. But hey, love to talk to you when it comes out and see what you got going on. Awesome, thanks. Well, man. thanks so much. It was a great interview. We appreciate it today, guys. Always. Oh, hey, you guys thank have you a great guys. Day. Really appreciate it.